trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University. We're taking on the grand challenges that face our students, graduates, and higher education is our mission and our passion. Hosted by Mason President Gregory Washington, this is the Access to Excellence podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm George Mason University President Gregory Washington, welcoming you to another Access to Excellence podcast. My guest today is one of the nation's foremost experts on the relationship between organized crime and corruption, as well as human trafficking, transnational crime, and terrorism. She has a particular focus on the Soviet Union, and her research has helped form the basis of our national policy on how to counter Russia. Louise Shelley is a university professor and is the founder and director of the Terrorism, Transnational Crime, and Corruption Center in Mason's Shar School of Policy and Government. She has testified before the House Committee on International Relations and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Dr. Shelley received a MacArthur Grant to establish the Russian Organized Crime Study Centers and has been the principal investigator in large-scale projects concerning environmental crime, money laundering into real estate, and illicit trade. Dr. Shelley, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure. Now, let's start with the basics. There's international crime and there's transnational crime. So what exactly is transnational crime? Transnational crime is crime that crosses borders, but it doesn't mean that a person has to pick up and move across borders. Sometimes it's just their money that moves, their cargo that moves, but it is criminals taking enormous advantage of the globalized world in which we live and also the cyber world because that has made people move internationally and move their products internationally and their money. Understood, understood. I saw a quote you gave in 2018 during testimony to the U.S. House Representative Subcommittee on Terrorism and Illicit Finance. You said, while international crime exists apart from terrorism, there is almost no terrorism that exists without funding from transnational crime. And we need to think of these transnational terrorists as diversified businessmen. Most of the folk on this call would not think of equating these two entities, right? Terrorists and businessmen. But you did go there. So can you explain what you meant and talk a little bit about that? In a book that I wrote in the mid-2000s called Dirty Entanglements, Corruption, Crime, and Terrorism, I showed how much terrorists were now engaged in transnational criminal activity. And this is not just drugs. We always think about this as being drugs, but transnational crime helps finance terrorism through human trafficking, as we've seen with ISIS in Iraq and Boko Haram. We've written recently a book at track on antiquity smuggling and how this has helped fund terrorism in the, in the Middle East. We're also looking at environmental products and the trafficking of animals and other commodities from timber, charcoal, that are helping to fund terrorist activity. 
So it's really a diverse portfolio. And unfortunately, there are major international terrorist groups like Hezbollah that are deeply, deeply involved in criminal activity in in Latin America and elsewhere. And we've had cases in North America involving them and how they've used used cars to launder money into Africa. That's the interesting part, right? Because what essentially you're saying is that anything can be used for crime. I found it amazing that you said that it is believed that the original 1993 World Trade Center bombing was at least in part funded by counterfeit T-shirts. Most people don't pay much attention to counterfeits, but yes. Do you know what these T-shirts were? What the Probably they were sports T-shirts because okay. there's a big market in counterfeit sports T-shirts. Mm-hmm. They're still funding all kinds of illicit activity. In fact, I was listening to some human trafficking investigators who were talking about how they found these human trafficking groups along the 95 corridor on the east coast of the United States, and they were also trafficking in counterfeit sports shirts because it was bringing them a lot of money this way. Some of the jerseys are really expensive, so I would assume a good counterfeit business in jerseys, athletic jerseys, could probably net a cohort. Absolutely. And these counterfeits are really the largest component of transnational crime. People think about drugs, but counterfeits represent about $500 billion a year business at a minimum at the moment. So much of the work on your center and a good bit of your research focuses on Russia. They're a hot topic right now, given what we're seeing happening in the Ukraine and the like. Can you talk a little bit about Russia's connection to some of these transnational crime rings and the like? Are they related to the oligarchs? Are they related to Putin? What is your thought on these? My understanding is that Putin has such control over the country that very little major happens in that country that doesn't filter its way up to Putin. So I'm just really interested in your thoughts on this. Okay. So when I first started working on organized crime in Russia, which was in the early 1990s, that was before the Putin era, and the criminals were very powerful individuals in Russia. And these oligarchical fortunes that we're talking about, the people that we're sanctioning today, built a lot of their fortunes by using organized crime because they fought off competitors, they consolidated their fortune by using organized crime. Once Putin came into power, he began to control the organized criminals, but it's not as if they went away they began to serve the state apparatus. And this involved many different types of activities, but now they are particularly active in cyberspace. So one of the things that we've seen is that we've had ransomware attacks against the United States. In the last year, we had a major attack on our infrastructure and our pipelines done by criminals. Those criminals have a hard time operating if they're not permitted to by either the central state or local officials that allow them to operate. And many of the criminals that are identified, say by the FBI, who are then arrested by the Russian state, are then given a choice. You can get your get-out-of-jail-free card if you come and work for us. Hmm, amazing. That is amazing. 
Wow. So there is a connection. There is a very strong connection. Is there revenue flow from these entities into the Russian state? Are they paying off the government for that protection? In many cases, yes. Wow, that's amazing. You know, I recently watched this whole CNN documentary on Navalny. Mm -hmm. and, Excellent uh, documentary. And that was one of the things that Navalny was focused on was the level of corruption and the connections between Putin and, and organized crime. It's been a very central part of the story for over two decades, but people have not paid enough attention to it until recently. Wow, wow, that is amazing. So I heard the data analysis that your center is doing with the National Science Foundation grant has already helped 55 million counterfeit and substandard medical masks be taken out of circulation worldwide, and that you've also helped with the takedown of more than 50,000 online marketplaces and social media posts. That's a huge achievement. These counterfeit masks are very insidious, especially given the fact that we depend on them for really life-saving protection. Can you talk a little bit about that? Certainly. I mean, this is one of our, how do I say, thrilling examples of our research and also an illustration of what is best about George Mason. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because this is the second grant we've had from NSF. The first one was on human trafficking, and I've been involved with congressional legislation that was just sponsored by Congressman Beyer, based in part on using some of the insights out of our research. And that came from working with the College of Engineering and working together on illicit supply chains. And so with that experience, we got a second, much larger grant from NSF to work on counterfeit masks and pharmaceuticals. And fortunately for us, we were matched up by DHS with 3M that was having a serious problem because the masks were being smuggled and sold online in just enormous quantities. Right. These were 3M masks that were counterfeit, right? Exactly. And they're going <coughs> all over the world. Mm -hmm. And so we just do enormous data analytics that help cut through the kinds of criminal networks and illicit supply chains that are allowing this to happen. Now, where were these networks primarily based? Where were the criminals? So 90% of these counterfeit masks are being produced in China and Hong Kong, and they are being produced in registered companies. Really? So, yes. So it's not as if it's some necessarily what you would think of. So it's not thing. any backdoor garage, there's no illicit laboratory environment where people are working in substandard conditions and just whipping out. These are actually full-fledged operational companies that are producing this? Absolutely. And they're producing the equipment itself to produce these counterfeit masks. Some of them are costing about $175,000. Yesterday I was looking at That is amazing. Care. So this is a massive So it's an actual enterprise. It's an enterprise. But it's an illicit enterprise because it's dealing with illicit commodities. What's so interesting about this research is that it's helping us as people working on supply chain research, looking at how illicit supply chains function, but it has just enormous practical implications, and I think we're saving lots of lives by keeping these very harmful masks out of the medical supply chains. 
this is interesting. Okay, so... I thought as I an did, engineer, you'd like this. No, no, no. It's really cool because you're talking about supply chain stuff, and it's really interesting. So let me start high level. So mask, right? I, I know you've dealt with that. I know you've dealt with the human trafficking and the whole sex trade. What other items are we talking about? What about counterfeit handbags and watches and goods like that? Did you focus there, too? We haven't done that. One of our partners on this NSF grant has spent time looking at high-end counterfeit pocketbooks. And what we're finding is that there is some overlap between individuals who are in the counterfeit clothing pocketbook sphere before the pandemic who moved their money into establishing factories for these products. For the mask. Mm -hmm. And that some of the money goes through the same financial channels as went through for the high-end counterfeit. So given the size of the enterprises that you're talking about and the numbers that you're talking about, banks have got to be involved. Absolutely. And not just the little run-of-the-mill banks. I'm talking about the big boys. You're absolutely right. So let's expose all of them. Talk to me about that today. So it's a really serious problem. And that's one of the things that we're working on now is how do you approach this issue? Because some of these banks are very powerful in China. And if the credit card companies that are exposing these problems refuse to accept payments for these counterfeits, it is posing problems for these banks. So we're looking at things that are really challenging. We're dealing with a mask that may cost under a dollar to produce, but at the scale of the millions and tens of millions or hundreds of millions of counterfeit masks that are being produced and distributed globally, by trying to stop this, we're running into large-scale financial issues. And that's something that the next stage of our research needs to pay more attention to, is how these key nodules, key hubs of facilitation are functioning. And I know you get money from the National Science Foundation, but you really should be talking to the industry trade groups, the ones who really stand to lose millions of dollars a year. And when you sum them all up, that the losses can even be greater than that, because those entities would probably pay to support this research. Oh, you're thinking about my next fundraising strategy. No, exactly. I mean, I see the world as a, from the eyes of a researcher, and you're always three to five years from not having any money to conduct your work, right? That's not our problem at the moment. Um, I would happily say, though I'm still looking at growth, that last year we doubled in our research funding and our possibilities to do research in part because of the private sector Mm -hmm. that is supporting us. For example, Amazon is going to be funding a hackathon in the fall on campus to be looking at counterfeiting. And there are other things that we're doing. So we're going to have students develop techniques for counterfeiting or techniques for capturing counterfeiters? What's the hackathon's hack? What's the hack here? We're going to try and see (laughs) how students can help develop AI and tools and measures to identify counterfeit products. But there's different kinds of counterfeits. For example, the counterfeit masks, many people don't know that they're buying counterfeit N95 masks. 
Oh, yeah. So the, there's a problem of people who are susceptible and looking for otherwise expensive items, and then there are people who are being duped, and we've had a lot of that during the well, pandemic. I'm going to be honest with you. With the mask, the real issue there was there was a time you just couldn't get them. You couldn't find mask anywhere, let alone quality mask, right? So I get it. It was an opportunity space for these folks that was created by tragedy. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned something earlier about your work with engineering and, and the like. And uh, there's a quote that I know you ascribe to from Richard Hemming, who is widely recognized as the father of computing. And that quote comes from his 1962 book called Numerical Methods for Scientists and Engineers. And in that book, he says, the purpose of computing is insight, not numbers. And that's what you are bringing. That's exactly it. And that's the kind of multidisciplinary collaboration that is just great at George Mason. Outstanding. Outstanding. So talk to me about the team you're working with at Mason in engineering. And what are you all trying to do long term? Well, that's the $64,000 question. But one of the things that we're trying to do, and I work with Edward Huang, he's been my co-PI on my first NSF grant on the second, and we're working on more now, and we're working on other research projects together, is to try and understand how illicit supply chains work. Because there's a whole part of engineering which is on supply chains. But there's been very, very little work done on how illicit supply chains work. And they're not the same. And one of the ways that you start to look and understand illicit supply chains is through the anomalies that exist of how how the counterfeiters distort numbers and they figure out all kinds of ways to game the system. And so are your the AI looking for those inconsistencies, those anomalies and that's how you find the trail? In large part, yes. And hmm. so that's part of our next stage of research is to find the anomalies and then help try and refine the AI that's doing this. But it takes a combination of both social science, political science, economic and cultural analysis with AI and supply chain analysis. And that's what we're hoping to do in the future is develop a whole center and capability at George Mason of developing an understanding of how to understand and analyze illicit data. Hmm. Amazing. That, that nobody's doing in the United States or elsewhere on a significant scale. Wow, that's really cool. That's really cool. And the engineering school has been so supportive of this. So let me move back over to this transnational issue about Russia that we talked about earlier because you have a really interesting career arc. So you were working at American University and trying to get published without success your research that indicated that organized crime and corruption associated with the Soviet Union's collapse would lead to a new form of authoritarianism, not a communist system, but a fundamentally enduring challenge. That has shown to be true, right? Unfortunately so. It is. Your argument that was failing uh, to address these problems in U.S. aid programs would cause an eventual backlash against the United States. That's true, right? Yes. <laughs> we see that um, today. And then you have Seymour Hersh, 
who used your research in that 1994 Atlantic article, and from that you were able to leverage that to receive your MacArthur grant. And at that point in time, it was off to the races. Is that right? Basically, that's the story. Seymour Hirsch, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, had a cover story in The Atlantic and had a page in it in which he said, the State Department says we can't talk about this subject of how organized crime and corruption are undermining this transition, but go talk to Louise Shelley. And then he quoted my work. <laughs> and then the head of the MacArthur Foundation read this, called up her Russian grants officer and said, make sure this woman gets a grant. And that, then, e that easy. Well, it took a while to put this together. No, I get it. But what I'm saying is at that point... Somebody's advocating for you to get the grant. You're not going out and having to hustle and do all the stuff to do it yourself. How do I say? I was a contrarian, but there were people who saw the wisdom of what I was saying and right. were very powerful. And there were people in Congress who understood it, too. And Absolutely. so they were there helping lobby for us. So what did you find about life in Russia after the fall? Because in, in large part, that's kind of what led to the rise of Putin and where we are today. What did your early work tell you about that life? When I was there in the early 1990s, and I was going frequently because we began to run these projects, the country, Russia, that came out of the Soviet Union was so unlike the Soviet Union I had lived in in the 1970s. It was much freer, but there was no economic security for people the guaranteed employment, the social welfare benefits, the child care, all of this had disappeared with the collapse of the Soviet state. And so people have this enormous sense of insecurity and organized crime was really powerful and was depriving people of the assets that they were supposed to acquire from the Soviet state. And that's where the oligarchs come in that we know today. Many of them profited enormously. So People had no financial security, and there were these rise of these people with enormous wealth that were making their fortunes using the <coughs> services of organized crime. And that's part of why Putin, when he came in in the early 2000s, was so popular, because he brought some stability to the society mm. and some sense of order. But this sense of order has been one in which the security apparatus and the law enforcement system have become much more powerful. And that's what we're seeing today, is what I was predicting in the early 1990s, that we would have a non-communist-based authoritarianism and a lack of free markets. And that's where we are today. Especially in Russia. In Russia, exactly. Without question. Going back to your book, Menace to Society, edited by Roy Goodson, you have a chapter called Russia and Ukraine, Transition or Tragedy. You were talking about the relationship between Russia and Ukraine back then. Feel free to elaborate on that relationship and bring us to present day. So you've really done your homework for this interview because not many people know this piece, but I think it's really important because already when I was writing about this in the late 1990s or early 2000s, I was already pointing out that there was an enormous difference in these two societies. Even though oligarchs were very powerful in both Russia and Ukraine, even though corruption was a terrible problem in both societies, 
there was a civil society committed to democracy that was emerging in Ukraine that was not evident on a significant scale in Russia. And it is this civil society and this commitment to democracy that has been so different and which is such a driving force for the Ukrainians at the moment. And you could see this in this phenomenon of human trafficking, which I was working on, is that there were so many civil society groups arising in Ukraine to try to help the victims of human trafficking, to make sure the courts would take on these cases. So it was the Ukrainians who were being trafficked? Yes. There were large numbers of Russian women, Ukrainian women, who were being trafficked internationally. But the Ukrainians were set as a civil society to try and do something about this. There were some people in Russia that were doing this, but civil society was really taking hold in Ukraine on, on many different issues. And that's the seeds of democracy. So is there a line to be drawn to what we're seeing in Ukraine today? Absolutely. What is that line? So the line is that Ukraine is a society that's had for more than two decades a real desire to be a society aligned with Western values in which there's a civil society, where there's a commitment to democracy, where individuals are trying to reckon with their historical past. And Russia, increasingly under Putin, has been undermining media freedom, clamping down on civil society, preventing civil society organizations from receiving foreign assistance. All of this has created societies that are wildly divergent from each other. Hmm. And that's part of what Putin so resents about Ukraine, is that Ukraine elected a president that wants to deal with corruption. Ukraine is a society that is allowing civil society and democracy to flourish. So it's not just a historical situation that he's trying to recreate the empire that existed in the Soviet Union and the Tsarist times, but he's also deeply resentful of having a society in which its citizens are so engaged with reform of the legal apparatus, civil society, forcing accountability for human traffickers, just the kind of things that a democratic society tries to push for. And wow. to have this on his border is just an enormous irritant to him. Irritant is a mild way of staying this. So why should people in America care about Ukraine? Because what we're looking at is an enormous military power without provocation, going out to not only undermine the government, but try and basically destroy the infrastructure, destroy the lives of the people that are living in Ukraine. What we're having is now almost 10 million displaced people in Ukraine that is also undermining Western Europe that's having a hard time coping in such a rapid order with this. They're seeing the destruction of people's lives. And so it is a direct assault on the values that are absolutely central to our society, which is respect for democracy, respect for civil society, respect for individual rights, self-determination. No, I get it, which are all the things that we stand for here, right? Yes. 
there's been talk that this can actually escalate. Tom Nichols, who's a professor at the U.S. Naval War College, who is very worried about escalation and claimed that this can really turn into World War III or a nuclear confrontation. What are your thoughts on that, knowing what you know about Russia and Putin? There are two sides to this. One, Putin does not like to be discredited. He doesn't like to be on top. And so there's always this possibility that Putin may resort to much more drastic measures in his war on Ukraine. But on the same time, and we get back to this corruption issue that you've brought up and that I do research on, the corruption in the Russian military has been so enormous and so strong in its impact that Putin's army and military has gone into Ukraine without the personnel, without the equipment, that it needs to be a functioning military force. And so it is functioning in extremely bad ways with just, and from a humanitarian point of view, it's very sad to see how many deaths are occurring on both sides, but the deaths in Russia were unexpected because there was no clear assessment. There was a, a sort of, how do I say, the fact that the military had been so corrupted and undermining its combat readiness was something that no one explained to Putin or that he was incapable of understanding. That's interesting because he's a KGB guy. It seemed like he would know that. I think that when you have power, and as one talks about corruption, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Nobody was explaining this to him, or maybe they didn't even want to understand how much the corruption of the military had led to their lack of capacity as a modern military force. So last year, you and your colleagues at the center published a second research study. I hope I get this pronunciation right. Raiderstra? Raiderstra, yes. Which is basically asset grabbing, right, mm -hmm. or the illicit acquisition of businesses or part of a business, right? And and this is not limited to just Russian businesses, even businesses of foreigners who set up businesses in Russia. And they would go in and grab these. You write about that, its impact on Western economies and why it requires special attention. Can you talk a little bit about that? Certainly. So the number one bestseller in the nonfiction category in the New York Times is a book at the moment by Bill Browder that talks about the raid that was conducted on his business, which was an investment firm in Russia. What's interesting about this case is that once his business was stolen, there were fraudulent tax refunds that were submitted by criminals with high-level political connections. And some of this money wound up in the United States invested in New York real estate. Hmm. And I was working on this case for the Southern District of New York as an expert on how crime works and how money laundering into real estate works in the United States. Whoa. So this case was eventually settled. And as this book tells you, one of the witnesses went home in this case to Russia and happened to fall off a fourth floor balcony. So there are serious problems in bringing these cases to justice, but it's not as if these problems just remain in Russia. They wind up and this dirty money winds up in the United States. That is really, really interesting. 
So there are significant connections between transnational crime in Russia, and there are significant challenges that this all poses to the U.S. and its current connection to the whole conflict and war in Ukraine. Absolutely. There's Russian money in real estate. There's Russian investments by individuals who are now sanctioned that were put into Facebook. There's Russian money in VC funds, venture capital funds in the United States. And so in a global economy where all of this is connected, it's not as if the crime stays in Russia and doesn't involve us. And as we've seen with the pipeline ransomware, you know, money went back to Russia. Amazingly, the U.S. law enforcement managed to trace and recover much of the money that was paid in the pipeline hack. But we're talking about global targets of Russian organized crime. And fortunately, in this war on Ukraine, and I'm sure there's a backstory we'll learn someday about how much the U.S. government has been working to try and protect our computer systems at the moment because one should have anticipated much more hybrid warfare of not just military attacks on Ukraine, but also cyber attacks on us. Hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about cyber because when this conflict in Ukraine started, one of the things I would have bet any amount of money on would have been that we would have gotten hit with a major cyber attack. Why hasn't that happened? What's your thoughts? I think that we have been probably extremely clever and have worked very hard in recent period to eliminate vulnerabilities and have very sophisticated individuals working to prevent penetration of our system. This is not just some sort of mishap the way the Russian troops are not functioning well in Ukraine, we have to be taking very aggressive action in helping to protect ourselves. Wow. So let's switch gears a little bit. How did you get involved in researching this topic? How did you get involved in terrorism and transnational crime and corruption? So that's a really interesting question. So when I was in graduate school studying criminology, I had been a Russian major at Cornell. And in fact, my honors thesis was on Russian crime literature. In fact, there was one great writer we had at George Mason named Aksyonov, and his mother was the subject of my honors dissertation, my honors thesis. From that, I was working on Russian crime and trying to understand how crime is different in a centrally controlled and planned economy than it is in a Western democratic society. And, mm -hmm. and then I worked on that and on the problems of corruption of the legal system. But as the Soviet Union began to collapse, I saw the rise of organized crime and the problems of corruption undermining the legal system and its ability to counter this phenomenon. And as I said, the criminals went global, and so did I. And so I stopped being a specialist exclusively on post-Soviet organized crime and began to be a specialist on transnational crime. But everything that the Russians were working on as criminals, environmental crime, drugs, human trafficking, hijacking the legitimate economy are issues that have been part of my research for decades. 
Give me an example of environmental crime. All right, I'll give you several of them. So Russia has just enormous forests mm-hmm. in Siberia, and China needs this wood for its massive construction projects. And so this wood has been illegally harvested, and often it's transported to China. Ah, interesting. Also, there's fishing, enormous fishing resources. And in the early post-Soviet days, the Yakuza in Japan, which are Japanese organized crime, who control the ports, and the ports sell fish, and Japanese eat a lot of fish, were involved in illegal fishing, and in return were providing Russian organized crime in the Far East, cars from Japan. So you would have a you know, a trade, and trade-based money laundering, which is something that we focus on, that helped pay for this criminal activity. Mm, wow. But now we've been working on projects that track on illegal wildlife trade. We're doing a project through our SENA Center, our Center on Criminal Networks, on illicit gold in South America, from Peru and Colombia, that's being transported around the world. So the Russian... Ent- Part of the problem was our entry into a much larger global problem that we're no, working on it. today. I get it. So how'd you get to Mason? Ah, so what's now the Shar School, or the Public Policy School, had the word out that if you can find professors who are engaged in policy research, who have grant money, who would seem to benefit from this environment, let us know. And so, as I'm telling you, I'm just really taking advantage at George Mason of the multidisciplinary environment. Oh, yeah. We definitely have that here. And I work work with engineering. I work with environmental science and policy. We run the terrorism database for the U.S. State Department. We have students from all parts of the university, global studies, law school, Carter Center, as well as Shar. And so... This was very appealing to be working in a university with many different parts. So Shar heard about my interest and wrote me a note, and my first dean from American was a full professor at Shar, and he just came over and said, we were interested in you. And so that's how it happened. I got hmm. recruited. Uh-huh. Really cool. Really cool. So I'll let you go on this one. Fentanyl is big business now. It's being incorporated in just about everything and passed off as just about everything. It is the pinnacle of illicit drug sales. Have you been looking into that? And Absolutely. Okay, and so where is that coming from and how would you characterize its dangers to society? Oh, I mean, the dangers are enormous. There were over 100,000 people residing in the United States who died last year of fentanyl overdoses. And some of this fentanyl is produced in factories in China and used to arrive by the mail. But now precursor chemicals are arriving into Mexico, then the fentanyl is being mixed there and smuggled across the border. But it's also coming in other clever ways. Just to talk about my students, one of my students did a brilliant term paper on how the U.S. Postal Service is being used by this and not detected because the fentanyl is brought into the Caribbean. Then they move to Puerto Rico, Mm -hmm. put it in the U.S. mail from Puerto Rico, and then ship it to the U.S. So there's just enormous 
ingenuity in how this drug is being moved into U.S. markets and integrated into other drugs. And we need much more network analysis. This morning I was having a discussion with the head of our SENA Center and some high-level U.S. government officials on how we could be thinking about this. And a year ago, we did a seminar for high-level government officials on what our research was showing in this area. Is there a link to terrorism? Mm, there's a link with some other drugs to terrorism. I would not say that the terrorism link on fentanyl is very strong. Wow. You have given us a lot to think about, and I am just so ecstatic to have you here at Mason and to have you doing this great stuff here. Well, thank you. So we really appreciate you. It provides a wonderful home to do this research. I agree. Well, that will wrap things up here at the Access to Excellence podcast. I'd like to thank my guest, Louise Shelley, founder and director of the Terrorism, Transnational Crime, and Corruption Center, in Mason Shaw School of Policy and Government for her time and expertise. I am Mason President Gregory Washington saying until next time, stay safe, Mason Nation. If you like what you heard on this podcast, go to podcast.gmu.edu for more of Gregory Washington's conversations with the thought leaders, experts, and educators who take on the grand challenges facing our students, graduates, and higher education. That's podcast.gmu.edu.